if you if you just want to create a universe, a, a little universe of your own, uh, including your dreams and your ideas and your visions and your thoughts, it's it's it's. No, I talk a little bit romantic, but, but I, I hope you'll forgive me for talking that way. Uh, you know, this universe is not the reality. Reality always uh, makes sabotage to to your uh, to your fantasy, to your dreams. So you have to take uh, uh, details out of the reality and put them into your university. But those details must be absolutely perfect to to fit into this little universe. And this universe is of course very limited, but if it's the right construction of it, it will be a perfect mirror of the reality around you. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Poncio. And this is the last, I think, for quite a while of our quarantine sight and sound lookbacks. Um, a big one, though, for, for me at least. I've done a lot of heavy lifting on this one. So this has been a director I've avoided forever. Which is um, weird because you seem to have... Igmar Bergman. Igmar Bergman, Bergman yeah. is, is who we're going to be talking about today. You seem to have dug in like heavily. Why did you avoid him for so long? I avoided him for so long because I knew I was going to dig into it. Hmm. Um, I'd only seen before this year. I I'd only seen one of his films, which was um, the- Seventh Seal. Right. And Seventh Seal had made a negative impression on me. Um, I talked a lot about kind of my retrospection, introspection, I should say, uh, on on death and uh-huh. what it meant. Um, and I saw Seventh like during my final year of college, and I saw Seventh Seal in the fall semester of my senior year, and it just kind of helped to be um, one piece of a of a bigger puzzle. You know, that summer of of nihilism, absurdism reading I had the summer before just kind of it just kind of added on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Seventh Seal had this more of a, a closer kinsmanship kinship effect to me. Yep, where it kind of more spoke. Um, a language I knew, I guess. And so from there, I just kind of ran away. Um, <laughs> you know, since then, since this year, in the worst possible setting, I saw Virgin Spring at a gym <laughs> while working what? out. Yeah. This I year? I saw Virgin Spring, yeah. No, um, you saw it last. No, no, sorry. I saw it, not this year. I saw it. But I didn't see, I'd waited several years. I'd waited a long time. Uh-huh. I had seen Virgin Spring since in the past six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, because we've talked know, about decade, it before on, yeah, on the show. Yeah, a decade. You know, man, quarantine has caused time to just melt together. That's true. Every um, single person in this house thinks it's a different day of the week every day. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's 100% true. Most importantly, we're recording this on Thursday. Tomorrow's <clears> the biggest day of the year, my birthday. That's true. That's true it is, Mario. Happy birthday. S- still can't be president. Um, but now I've finally seen, you know, two films we're going to watch today and, uh, 
now um, I think I'm just gonna go deep dive in dive in now. well I'm, I'm, this, dive in. this was a very good oh so you're like you're gonna dive into Bergman you're gonna like just do the rest of them well I just I want to watch you know hour of the wolf uh I watched cries and whispers which I didn't actually like um why but I uh we'll we'll talk about that later it, it'll, it'll fit more to the uh, later conversation okay. um I didn't I didn't dislike cries and whispers I just I liked it but it has this very Linden effect for me. Um, it can't be good then. <laughs> well, better than Barry <laughs> Linden. But, but, you know, now that I see that like Fanny and Alexander and Scenes from a Marriage both have their like television versions on Criterion, uh-huh. which are like universally considered the more exceptional versions. Like yeah. I'm going to watch those. Um, I'm going to just I'll skip the theatrical versions of those films just because, you know, that's a necessity in that. But, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this was a good. I mean, I don't know. Was it sawdust, about, sawdust, and and not sawdust and trinkets. I'm trying to think of what it's called, but the, you know, I, I didn't want to see that now. And yeah, this is. I mean, I for me, this was a good week. Darkly. to div to dive into something, um, and just to kind of like a, escape, escape things, which is again kind of one of there's a Tarkovsky esque um, feeling when I was watching these these movies. Not because I, I like them as much as the Tarkovsky stuff. Well, Persona's close, I guess. But just because um, there was like so much stuff happening in the world, it felt really good to kind of have two hours to myself when I wasn't questioning like the nature of our reality and our country and what the hell has happened to it and and uh, and how it made me feel and <laughs> like how I just kind of wanted to cry like at various parts of, of the week. Um, so from that standpoint, I, you've picked a good, you've picked a, a good, you've picked something that will kind of take your mind off of things occasionally, whenever you wanted to. Yeah. Do you, you want to, do you want to talk about that really quick? Just, just, well, I just, I did just throw it out there. So, okay. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about the entire event. Well, I don't know if I need to necessarily talk like how much we really need to say about it. I just think that, um, it is becoming, uh, I don't know, not that it's becoming apparent, but it's like, it ha it is apparent that, um, more, I don't know. I don't really know what I want to say about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's not something it was just it was it was upsetting because I think we all I think a lot of us and when I say a lot of us maybe I mean white people and maybe I just mean people that like um, don't subscribe to a lot of the ideals that the people that are against these protests are um, subscribing to. Um, but you think you understand a certain the country in a certain way, and then it comes to. Uh, you know, you watch a nine-minute video or whatever it is, and you understand it less. And then uh, everything starts happening, and then people start talking against it. And then the New York Times publishes amazingly horrible editorials by Tom Cotton. Um, I I did not even give that a game. I didn't read it, but I know it happened. And you understand the country less and less. You thought it was one thing, and then you uh, you learn quickly it's another thing. And um, it, I find it very emotional watching and listening to people talk about like the people that are trying to, the people that are protesting, um, and uh, what they're doing it for and why they're doing it. And uh, but that being said, it was it was a welcome relief to kind of sit down with Persona for you know an hour and forty minutes and just not think about anything. It had that kind of like visceral numbing effect i don't know i don't know how you feel about this stuff you've been you you got deeper so 
you know, maybe you um, needed it more. It's yeah, no, I, I you know, I've, I've complex feelings about what's going on. I, I fervently support Black Lives Matter and need, feel that the protests are inherently needed. Um, to a degree, I, I won't bring in now. I feel it doesn't go far enough. And that's why I often stay out of it. Um, but I'm also a white person saying that, so I can't really say much of it. But the feelings I have about what should be done are a little more visceral mm. and not commonly accepted. Um, no, but I and think so. And so, and so yeah. I stay pretty quiet on it. I stay, I stay pretty quiet just because I feel as though the ways in which it makes me feel um, are a little more destructive to the movement. Um, and to mm. the ideas of the movement and to to the current society that we have now, then then helps. And so I'm letting people who have a better control <laughs> of their um, emotional affect um, kind of take the lead on this and, and yeah. just supporting it and just supporting it from the ways I can. Um, the ways in which I can, meaning like, um, you know, I, I don't need to be a voice in it right now because I don't. For one thing, I don't understand it inherently just because of being white and having a fairly minimal yeah, we can't. In. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also in the ways that um, I have a tendency to react very um, vicariously and uh, not vicariously is not the right word um, viscerally uh, and maybe a little more aggressively than, need, than needs to be stated right now and, and that doesn't have a place in the productive parts of the dialogue. Well, I don't know. Um, so that's why, yeah, that's why I have a, a complex relationship with it. And, and I guess like this for me has been a nice escape to kind of just like bury myself in something I can understand. Mm, yeah. I and agree. Something I can't, I can like research and, and delving into film and delving into literature. And I've done a lot of reading for this episode. Um, I don't know necessarily because I had like, because like of the world around me or just because it was something interesting to me, but, like, I went heavy into this episode. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be hard to kind of like limit the word vomit I'm gonna spread <laughs> like I kind of did on that uh, Metropolis episode. No, um, but it's good. I think it's good. I think anyone that's listening to this podcast, I mean, I think if we can provide like two hours of word vomit that's not related to something like really terrible that's happening, and then you can go back to it and you know, have had a little distance and had a little time to reflect and had a little space from it, then I think that's, that has some value, I think. And I, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it should be noted. Some of this word vomit we're going to be doing has a lot to deal with inherent nihilism and absurdism in, in life in general, but that's just Igmar Bergman. But I it's mean, just, it's, 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 it's an artistic creative. It's nihilism, Swedish, it's Swedish yeah. nihilism. That's a different kind of nihilism. Oh, when they don't care, have... when they don't care about stuff, they don't care about it in a different way. Um, Though the funny thing is, talking from a political standpoint, just about Ibar Bergman, I I do appreciate him. What interestingly enough, early on in his life, he talks about this in Magic Lantern that he was actually a really strong supporter of the National Socialist Movement. Great, uh, he was just a child. He was a child at the time, obviously. Um, Did he tweet he about it? Off. If he didn't tweet about it, then it didn't happen. So, but. But the reasons why was he saw, you know, Hitler as kind of this vivacious force. And it wasn't he, like when he saw the concentration camps, he says this in Magic Lantern, how he couldn't like believe it at first. He couldn't yep. intellectualize it from the, the man he had built and the man he had seen from the reality of it. And kind of when it, it blew itself up, he kind of like, like when it, when it became very real, he um, it kind of deconstructed him. 
but quite a bit and and did a lot of damage to him in like the the mid 40s yeah um and what's actually also funny is then he became very strongly a social democrat um you know just because he saw uh, it the social democrats in sweden um and he mentions this in um in his on life and work from uh, with you know directed by jordan donner who was kind of the producer on fanny and alexander um and he talks about how you know he supported because he saw a lot of this this compromise and communication and then once again that kind of blew up in his face in the mid-70s um, yeah when he was kind of put up for the tax evasion charges wasn't that being just kind of like a bureaucratic mistake but um it's interesting like we look at Igmar Bergman and he's a very, even though he tries to be apolitical, he ends up being a very political figure. Well, it's weird so because I think a lot of artists, the, that's yeah. the politics we'll talk about today is, is Igmar Bergman politics. Hey, but from that perspective, I think a lot of artists go through that same thing. I think a lot of artists see these kind of like these uh, pseudo dictatorial or ja Rule, dictat- for example. <laughs> what did Ja Rule say? Well, you have no. I'm just I'm just talking about Firefest. Oh yeah, yeah. No, but these guys that like they they think. You know, we could say Brett Easton Ellis is one of these people where he thinks the 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 abstract idea of free speech literally is more important than anything else in the world. And or if so, you want to go with like somebody like Drew Brees, who feels yeah, that the protection come on, Drew Brees, of free come speech on. by soldiers means that you can't protest I mean, again, against the abolition of but just where did he get where did he get the idea that like anyone was worried or interested in talking about the flag let's let's move on and, and get and get heavily into today's episode we're talking about two of the films that are on the sight and sound list um two of two of many many well let's uh, Igor Bergman is, should, is the most prevalent figure in sight and sound we right? should talk about that I don't I thought it was just the two is it just the two? I don't. Think I thought it was Persona was seventeen and Wild Strawberries was no, sixty three. No, for for sure. Um, and Seven Seal was lower than that. It was Seven Seal was almost at the bottom. Was it? Is it just the two? Um, no, Fanny Alexander shows up on the list. Where is it? Uh, Fanny Alexander is eighty four. Uh, on the director's Seal. list or on this on the sight and sound like the critics list? Critics, critics poll. Okay. Um, so maybe he only has maybe he only has the four. But Mario, here's a weird thing, and I don't know which one movie he still he still has four films yeah. on the list. I, I don't know. know where you want to start here, but I thought one of the weird things doing research for this is that um, Wild Strawberries doesn't show up on the director's poll at all. Is that right, weird? Persona's, persona's high. Do you um, find that strange? I kind of found it a little strange just from the way that people write about it and like the amount of the amount of 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 virtual air that people have expelled, like expounding on the various theories about like what the ending of this movie means. And, and, no, I'm and, trying, and what else, what else shows up on the director's list that doesn't show up? We get, so we have hour of the wolf shows up on the director's list. Um, I'm doing this just kind of sight and scene seventh seal, uh, which also shows up on the critics list. I believe that that's it. So he only has those three films that show up. He has Whoa. Persona. He, or sorry, he has Persona, Fanny, and Alexander show up at the top 20 mm-hmm. on the director's list. Um, very quickly below it is Night of the Wolf at I mean, Hour of the Wolf at 44. So it's a little further below it. And then, um, you know, you have Seventh Seal, which is surprisingly, for, for what is like... In the 
basic layman's terms, often considered his greatest film. Um, you know, it shows up probably the most well-known lowest film. on this list, which is, which is interesting. But this is, but it's, um, it's also not yeah, interesting in the well-known. sense that I think it's it probably a, it's probably gone from like the top to the you know 50, 70 years later to the bottom. You know what I mean? Like that's just kind of what these these lists do. Uh, what do you, what do you ask though? You know, is is it important that Wild Strawberry doesn't show up? I I point you once again to the directors putting Al Hazard Balthazar at sixteen. Oh no no no! Breathless at third. And I'm know, not saying that as much as I think Wild Strawberry seems like a very director's movie in the sense that it's very carefully orchestrated. Um, in a different way, the persona is very carefully orchestrated. You know, it's dropping little subtle hints in things along the way. It's got those those really um, vivid, almost filmmaking dream sequences um, in them. And it seems I just it struck me that it was odd that only one director voted for it um, on the list when it seems like it would be, you know, it would be a director's movie. So you don't remember who the director was who voted for it? You know, I just had it. Uh, Andre Eureka. I am not familiar with him. He, vo- um, he voted for Andre Rublev, La Gente, Barry Lyndon, Gertrude, The Magnificent Ambersons, Man of Iran, Rear Window, The Story of the Late Chrysanthemums, Sunrise, and Wild Strawberries. So there you go. Really diverse list. Uh, you know, Wild Strawberries to me feels so much more carefully constructed from a screenplay standpoint, from a writing standpoint. You know, he writes this during a spell of stomach ailment um, in a hospital. Actually, both films we're going to talk about today, he writes in the hospital. Um, He writes Persona while dealing with a lung infection and uh, antibiotic reaction, um, almost pneumonia. Um, And he writes, you know, Wild Strawberries while in hospital for just this kind of prolonged stomach ailment he had throughout his entire life. Like, you know, in the interview he has with um, South in the South Bank show with, with Melvin Bragg, he talks about like, just, he was constantly eating like weak porridge because he couldn't stomach anything else. Um, that sucks. But wild strawberries kind of has this more outside that kind of opening dream sequence. Everything else has this. Um, and, you know, later on the kind of inquisitor scene, um, Yep. has a strong devotion to form from the get-go, um, from, from the word go, to where it feels as though it is the the word put to screen less than it is kind of a director's sort of vision. Um, and maybe maybe that's that's the reason why. There are lots of TIE fighters flying by your house right now. Do you know that? <laughs> there's, is some, it, is it con- there's some kind of Star Wars battle going on outside your window. That is that is actually what the motorcycle sound if the doors are open, those are open. And, and well, so Gunnar Fisher does um, the cinematography for Wild Strawberries. He, you know, works with him early on with Smiles of a Summer Night and Seventh Seal and then is um, replaced for most of Bergman's career by um, Sven. Nyquist. Uh, ne- yeah. Nyquist, Nyquist, yeah. So, you know, maybe... Maybe it's it's something as though there's there's like a a discount. like Seven Seals lower on the list. Um, so maybe there's there's something. But I like Seven Seal well, more than a, I like Wild Strawberries. But maybe there's like a disconnect um, between director vision and, and the cinematographic vision that, that the directors see. Mm. I, I I don't know. I didn't I didn't look 
Well, we're directors here. Don't, directors don't really speak heavily about yeah. Wild Strawberries. We're here Wild now, Strawberries Mario. is more of um, introspective. We're in of, Wild Strawberries, so why don't you give us a rundown of of Wild Strawberries from 1957? So Wild Strawberries is, uh, you know, details Isaac Borg, who's this 78-year-old uh, physician, um, doctor, he's a bacteriologist, I believe, specifically, yep. um, who's a pretty cantankerous man. You, you could almost see this as a um, parallel to, you know, Dickens' Christmas Carol. He's he's oh, he no. feels as though he's, he's affable uh, in, in some ways. He feels as though he's, he's affable and maybe just removed from people because of his general proclivity to feel as though people... Um, are more apt to talk about the character and whatnot of people. But he himself has shown through his interactions with others is, is pretty cantankerous, pretty judgmental. Um, he is bound to receive a honorary doctorate from, um, I believe it is his alma mater. I, I think so. It's in, University's alma mater. I don't know. It's in Lund though. So yeah, from the London university. And he decides to uh, travel there by car. He really traveled decided to travel by plane, but he's going to make the, the sojourn by car. Um, joining him is his daughter-in-law, uh, Marianne, who's been estranged from his son. Um, who's my hero? For reasons we are to find out. Um, as he's traveling along, he picks up, he stops at places uh, that were memories for him of his past, uh, old summer houses. Um, it has various daydreams of his past, uh, first loves, uh, Sarah, one of his first loves played by B.B. Uh, Anderson. And, you know, as he's daydreaming, he actually picks up this hitchhiker. Um, whose name is also Sarah. Sarah, whose name is also Sarah. Who's also played uh, by B.B. Anderson. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and they continue on their drive. And, you know, as he's going, Isaac Borg kind of picks up other people. He picks up this really cantankerous couple, um, the Almonds, who are feisty and argumentative with each other. They, they are eventually kicked out of the car because of their attitudes. And he continues along his drive. Marianne reveals to him um, that the reason why she has left the, his, you know, Isaac's son is because of a disagreement over um, a child that Marianne is, is pregnant with. There is that, that great line that Evald has, um, in in memory with his argument with Marianne, where he says like I am a coward because I just wish for death, like the sweet, basically the sweet release of death. It's a really great kind of line. Well, what does he say? Um, like this life, this life sickens me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Go Evald. This is my guy. And you know he he meets up with his elderly mother who's still alive. He has memories of his relationship with his wife, which he has another dream where he imagines that angry couple, the almonds kind of holding him uh, in an examination the, the you know, Gunnar uh, Soberg uh, plays the examiner as well as the angry husband. And eventually he gets back to um, Lund where he is, you know, presented with his honorary doctorate. And, you know, he's sees Sarah and the hitchhikers and they, have this kind of moment of like saying, you know, you know, Sarah's has this really 
weird argument going off these two other hitchhikers who are with her like one wants to be a minister's one wants to be a minister and the other one's uh very vividly anti-theistic in his opinions mm -hmm. and they're kind of both kind of vying for his love and you know vying for her love and, and she says like oh you know you know I, you're the one i love in the end and he tries to step away from his curmudgeonness and tries to talk to evald and marianne trying to resolve the strife between them and he has this memory back again of sarah now has bb uh, anderson has this foreign love kind of leading him to his parents um and he and he ends the film with kind of the smile feeling as though you have this this idea this shift in personality from this curmudgeonly man to somebody who can maybe ultimately grow from it uh-huh um and so it's kind of this this, this evolution of, of of man of, of a man from from his age yeah that's it that's that's the that's the plot of that's the plot of wild strawberries you know what's funny is for the longest time i thought that that movie was about something totally different um you think it's about you think about harvesting strawberries i don't know what i thought it was about and i i i i i, I, I the original criterion cover was not very interesting um now they kind of create new covers for stuff they they create new paintings they create, create original artwork that's you know uh looks like something you'd want to 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 see um but I remember the the original cover of Wild Cherry being really boring and just like a black and white shot. Wild strawberries. What did I say? Wild Cherry. Wild Cherry is, I think, a different movie. The Taste of Cherry was a movie we talked about last night. Yeah. Um, I remember being really boring and I didn't want to see it. I um, I liked it, and I wasn't. I didn't. Well, didn't want to like it after the first couple of minutes. It's funny because all of these articles that I've read by all these psychologists that are like analyzing this movie. Um, uh, psychologically are obsessed with the opening the opening monologue the opening narration obsessed with it obsessed mario and how it like frames this guy's worldview and then how the rest of the movie how bergman spends the rest of the movie kind of deconstructing almost line by line that original narration so you know when he's when he's saying um uh where is it i have it here at the age of 76, I feel I'm much too old to lie to myself, but of course I can't be too sure. My complacent attitude toward my own truthfulness could be dishonesty in disguise, although I don't know, I don't quite know what I might want to hide. Nevertheless, it is for some reason, nonetheless, it is for some reason I would have to evaluate myself. I am sure that I would do so without shame or concern for my reputation. My name is Isaac Borg, and then, which is translated as... Ice uh, fortress, ice fortress, which is which is which is good because as a non-Swedish person, you're just kind of like Isaac Borg seems like a perfectly Swedish name, and then it has all this symbolism like heaped on top of it. So the thing that's actually really interesting about that, he talks about this in images um, when he's talking about wild strawberries. He says that he, you know, how critics kind of dwelled heavily into the IB, the Igmar Bergman, and into the the term of ice fortress. Yeah. And how a lot of that he would then do in interviews and talks afterwards is kind of just a way to kind of throw critics off, um, just to kind of like tell them something so they had something to hold on to. Like about like about the relationship with his father and his parents and stuff. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, to a degree, like 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 he he kind of holds steady to like this idea that it is ultimately this contemplation with his parents, you know. But there's a thing that I find so interesting. 
about this film is there's so many lies, or I don't want to say lies, contradictions he tells in his recollections of Wild Strawberries. Okay. Um, he mentions in a lot of interviews how when he wrote this, he had Victor Stoltzfram in mind from the get-go. Yep. Um, and then in in um, when he's talking in images, he, he says, like, that was a lie. Like, I didn't have him in mind. Somebody from the studio kind of just suggested him. You know, and and he he just constantly has these weird contradictions with wild strawberries that I find innately fascinating. Well, I think it's, so it, it's interesting because uh, the thing that kind of got me, I was, I was prepared for another or situation where I was like, Oh my God, this is another classicist 1950s movie, black and white where, you know, uh, the director is just going to leave the camera someplace or it's going to slowly pan it around and I'm just going to hate myself. Um, and then, and then the first dream sequence happens, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, obviously, Ingmar Bergman really loves Kafka. Like, he's obviously read all the Kafka stories, and he knows all the Kafka things. He's watched a lot of German expressionism. He knows all about the weird angles and you know how to shoot this stuff. And um, and then I was kind of hooked after that. And part of the hooking for me was waiting for the dream sequences because I I'm going to be honest with you, I had very little interest in whatever else was happening in the thing. But then he yelled at Marianne for smoking. Remember when he, he like gives her a bunch of crap about like how women shouldn't smoke? And I was like, well, this is not like this is not like a misogynist piece, you know what I mean? Ingmar Bergman's not no Ingmar Bergman is not like one of those directors. I mean, he's had relationships with both of his his actresses. Um, you know, his muses in um BB Anderson and um Volman, yeah. The Volman. As far as I know, I'm aware he's not one of those people who's known for like manipulating and like ruining the lives of his of his actresses. You know what I mean? Um, they really do. I mean, there's 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 some writing on the complex relationships he had. Complex his... relationships, sure, sure, sure. But the when he so he what I think what I'm trying to say is that he didn't strike me as someone who was innately misogynist. This wasn't a misogynist movie. So as soon as like this misogyny comes out, I was like, well, that's really interesting. That's like a character trait. Because until then, all we knew about Borg was what he told us because we got a dream sequence and then we get a couple of things with exchange with him, with him and Marianne and with him in the, um, with him in the housekeeper. Um, and that's when I was kind of fascinated and I was waiting for all these little, I was waiting for all these little things. And I think the really interesting thing about wild strawberry is from this podcast perspective, but also from a film perspective is that it plays like it wants to be a piece of, of, of classicist cinema. But it keeps finding really interesting ways to subvert that classicism. And I think so it's hard to tell, I suppose, from what you're saying, what is a lie and what is not like a lie. But one of the the articles I read by um, Paul Einstein is called Reflections on Bergman's Wild Strawberries. He says, uh, this is wild strawberries may be a work of art that itself is the missing solution to the problem it depicts since it does for Bergman what Borg cannot do. So in a sense, this movie, this guy is positing that this film is reconciling Bergman's relationship with his parents or with his father or with his, you know, both of his parents or whatever. 
at a much earlier age and much more actively than Borg was interested in doing at any point in his life up until this moment. You know what I mean? He waits until he's 79 years old. He waits until he's getting this culminating achievement to uh, reconcile the way that he was raised, um, his mother's personality, his the love that his mother is willing to give to him um, with with who he is and then ultimately with who Marianne is, who also calls him uncle. And now we know, we know that there's some of this stuff, I guess, in, in, in the family. Um, because Sarah, his original Sarah, ends up marrying her cousin, which is uh, her, her, his brother anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, he's able to, Bergman's able to reconcile things that it takes, it takes Borg a lifetime to reconcile. You know what I mean? Oh. And I don't think that that's necessarily important to the, to, um, to appreciating the film, but it does add like a psychological complexity to this in the sense that it seems that Bergman is trying really fucking hard to make sure that by the end of this movie, like Borg doesn't, you know, end up dead. You know what I mean? And there's a really interesting, one of the articles, I, I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't have it like the name in front of me. It goes into this really cool thing about, so he says he he wasn't thinking of, of, of Victor Sorenstrom, um, which I think is, do you believe that? Because I don't b- really believe that. I don't know. I, I, so don't, he, so I don't know. He says he wasn't thinking about him. But then if you watch The Phantom Carriage, there's, you know, The Phantom Carriage is essentially about a uh, uh, death's carriage and whoever is the fucking f- fucking cool movie by the way great movie i've only seen i've only seen a couple minutes of it i just wanted to get a sense of it because i was reading it in this thing and then you said to watch it but so i mean essentially what i from what i understand the 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 point of the movie is that whoever dies closest to midnight on new year's eve will ride will drive the death's carriage for the rest of the year yeah exactly so that's that's the conceit so this guy posits that um the carriage that happens in the first dream sequence when um, when Isaac is, you know, he sees the guy with the head, like the weird balloon kind of head, and then it explodes and all the blood runs out. And it's this really kind of super blown out imagery in this like city square. And then a, and then a, a driverless carriage comes around the corner and gets stuck on the lamppost. That guy posits that this is also a reference to the phantom carriage. It's, he takes that all the way through the end of the movie where apparently if you listen to it and I didn't go back and watch it again because I have other things to do. The, the there's 11 bell chimes. He falls asleep at 11 o'clock, which means he avoids death. He like for that night. And that was one of the things that I took away when I was watching the movie. I was like, I wonder if he's going to die. And the way that he, the way that he frames that, that last shot, the way Borg kind of turns over, he's got a happy smile on his face, but then he doesn't move for a second. I was like, does he die? Is that one of the things he's, he's made this piece of his life before he dies. But this guy kind of posits that like, it's a little bit deeper than that. It has this kind of larger cultural and societal context in the sense that like, not only has he avoided death, by like the bell only chiming 11 times, but he's avoided having to like be burdened by his death. He's avoided a kind of, of, of afterlife of burden by doing all this work, by opening himself up to being like an ice fortress to, 
you know, forgiving his son's debt and telling Marianne that he really likes her and kind of making peace with the fact that he didn't get his Sarah because this younger Sarah, which he knows he can't have, you know, says she loves him. And however genuine or just nice that is, um, you know, it, it's, it says something to him internally. You know what I mean? And all of that stuff, I didn't know half of that stuff when I, I, after I watched the movie, but upon reflecting on it, I was like, that's a that's, if that if any of that is true, it's deeper than I thought it was, and I thought I already thought it was a pretty deep movie. See, what I find I, I, I upon initial viewing, that's what I thought too. Um, and I just like I said, I delve deep into this. And there's this interview he has with Playboy in 1964 after the silence comes out. And Playboy in interviewing him says many reviewers felt that this same message, that of salvation from solitude through love was also the theme of your best-known and most commercially successful film, Wild Strawberries, in which the old physician, as one critic wrote, after a life of emotional detachment, learns the lesson of compassion and is redeemed by this change of heart. Are they right? Then Bergman responds, but he doesn't change. He can't. That's just it. I don't believe that people can change. Not really. Not fundamentally. Do you? They have a moment of illumination. They may see themselves, have awareness of what they are, but that is the most they can hope for. And that strikes me because I find this film not has one of this kind of subversion um, or avoidance of, you know, the death or whatever is to come or of the responsibilities or of, um, of a reflection and a life renewed, but I find it more has this crippling... <laughs> reflection and uh-huh. and momentary um, easement from the anxiety of of the permanent. Uh, it which has value, know, though. It has value. Um, you know, he's dreams so permeate through this film yeah. obviously and and the two main dream sequences the the opening you know kind of fantastic nightmare sequence with the you know the 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 absolute perfect early dryer um german expressionism you know of the missing clock faces the, the, the horror it. the Love true it. pure natural horror that 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 is enough and you know so faintly unseen the false faced road later on you could see that the the phantom carriage and i, I agree with you there it's kind of like a reflection of the phantom carriage comes from a road but in this scene bergman paints a fake road that berg that borg is going to see you know like as he starts to look down that road it's a fake fictitious wall of mm-hmm. a road it, it, to add to this kind of uneasy beastie beastiness to 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 the dreams and then later on you know you spoke of kafka that examiner sequence just has this real oh my trial esque it oh, just it's feels insane. like a living yeah living existence of the trial yeah um and it, and it, it maybe delve into he talks in magic lantern a lot about august Strindberg. you know yeah. um his fascination with the uh late 19th century early 20th century poet august Strindberg. um you know, he did numerous, he did four times he tried to do a dream play. 
which is kind of like, you know, with Two Damascus, kind of Sarah Strindberg's, um, like, masterpiece. Uh -huh. he, he, he feels like he failed each time. Um, he even mentioned on his last attempt uh, from Magic Lantern, he says, like, on his 1986 production, the attempts at the small stage's 40 performances was not bad, but insufficient. So much effort, pain, anxiety, tedium, hope, all to no avail. So this is like somebody that's so, so Strindberg and, 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 and Soulstrom are kind of like combining here. And I find the opening from a dream play interesting, um, where, he's, where Strindberg says, the characters split, double, multiply, vanish, solidify, burr, clarify, but one consciousness reigns above them all, that of the dreamer. And before there are no secrets, no incongruities, no scruples, no laws. There is neither judgment nor exoneration, but mere narration. And as the dream is mostly painful, rather pleasant, a note of melancholy of pity, with all living things run right through it, the wobbly tale. Sleep the liberator plays off in a dismal part. When the pain is at its worst, the awakening comes and reconciles the sufferer with reality, which, however distressing may be, nevertheless seems happy in comparison to the torments of the dream. And the thing I feel about Wild Strawberries is, is this, this real difference from, from that opinion. I feel as though Wild Strawberries is kind of just this momentary lapse, this momentary breath upon this ocean of endless suffering. <clears throat> and he says, in, uh, Bergman says in Magic Lantern, death's an insoluble horror, not because it hurts, but because it's full of beastly dreams you can't wake from. And you know, Borg is this character to me who's, you know, upon death's door. And this is written in, you know, this is 1957, the year in which he makes Seventh Seal, that Bergman considers the film to be his dealing with death. He had had a, these extreme anxieties from an early childhood on death. And this was his, you know, Seventh Seal. And, and I feel Wild Strawberries are kind of mm. like exoneration mm. on death. Um, what know, is, what like do you mean by exoneration have, on death? You mean that he gets uh, a Exoneration, pass? not exonerate, in this... From making it an obsession to making it just a prevail, like a prevalent part of his life, mm -hmm. like it goes from being obsessed to obsessed with it to being a certainty that he can move on from. Mm. Like he knows it's to come, but he can move on from it. And while Strawberries feels like this mm. necessary moment to look at it, death. And, and I, I'm talking about 1957, Igmar Bergman. I will, will go through this and I will clarify my opinion, my feelings on how he kind of draws through life from there uh -huh. but i feel as though he kind of goes like life is a fucking nightmare i mean life life's a nightmare in and of mm. itself but it is a nightmare that you will have a strict appreciation for when you realize that the non-living aspects of it are the true horrors because the two dream sequences in this you know not the daydreams but the two dreams where yeah. borg is actually physically asleep yep. are horrors they're absolute horrors yeah you know yeah, yeah. I um, I don't disagree. I don't necessarily disagree with that aspect of it. They are horrors. I wonder though about the. I don't know, the fatal like the the kind of like negative fatalism of 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 that type of thinking because I keep I was bothered. Do we call this? Do we call it fatalism or do we call it absurdism? No, I don't think because the absurd I, there's not like necessarily assertive because he definitely knows it's going to happen, and he's also very comfortable with it. And it's not that he doesn't understand. I guess it, it would be more fatalism. Yeah, doesn't understand it, but it's also there's there's a kind of from the way you've described, there's a kind of elemental kind of um, understanding that I'm going to die. I would like to make peace before I die, for whatever reason. 
there's this weird sense though I, I was one of the things that I was bothered by by the whole in the whole movie was the idea of the um honorary doctorate i i was i got i was very stuck on the honorary doctorate i was like why an honorary doctorate who cares and part of me was like then i have to adjust my thinking in 1957 in sweden or 19 whatever in sweden 50 whatever or 40 whatever it was probably a big deal to get an honorary doctorate from like the university you grew up from he's obviously a well-respected doctor gas station attendant max van Sydow, uh obviously has very high praise <laughs> Him. I always, I always um, forget. I always forget how good looking that man was. By the way, playing, playing down a little bit from where he, from where he was in the Seventh Seal, he's just the gas station. He was not. He was fun. not Abar Bergman. He couldn't do two starring roles. He's, you know, he needed a break. Uh, he's the best gas station attendant in history. I think, right? Um, I mean, BB Anderson also kind of goes from a small role in Seventh Seal to a bigger role here. So. That's true. That's true. Then to just an ins- insanely humongous amazing role in persona but we'll get there i got bugged i was bugged by this but this honorary doctor because even when i made allowances for the time and in and, and the culture i was like i don't really see what like the big deal about this doctorate is you know that it's that it's a a capper uh like of in a way um and for someone who feels so little for or who we're supposed to understand feels so little for the world around him for um seemingly things like this because his mother doesn't really care about it and um the people around him uh care about it but they think of him and it's where i think the gas station attendant scene um comes into play is that they don't necessarily think of him as as like an academic or they don't necessarily think of him on this higher plane they think of him as a very like not grassroots, but they like a meat and potatoes kind of guy. You know what I mean? He's the guy that helped their family. He delivered babies. It's very like, not bottom rung, but like salt of the earth type thing. You know what I mean? And he's getting this very non-salt of the earth type award. He's going to be placed in some kind of elite status. You would, I got the impression that he wouldn't care about it. But I got the impression by the end of the movie that he kind of cared about it a lot. That it kind of rounded out his that his his life in some way which makes me think that he's not the move the film is not so much just kind of death is not so much settling over him as much as he is kind of welcoming perhaps a death from a certain angle he will take it if he can get to this point and i also don't know if throughout the movie that he knows that he can get to that point i think he needs to he needs to confront things that obviously haven't been confronted before. I think maybe part of the Kafka-esque and intense and horror aspect of those dreams is due to the fact that he's, you know, maybe he's had them before, maybe he's thought of them before, but he's probably hasn't confronted them head-on before. You know what I mean? One of the interesting things that when I thought when you saw the um, the recollection of him seeing his wife have an affair, um, which I thought was... A, which that was a weird scene from not his perspective, but when they're showing him, I think it's fine. And when they're showing the other guy, the kind of predatory leer of that other guy by the river, I was like, "Oh, that's that's weird." Um, I wonder. I, I wondered about like how long he's looked at this in the past. You know what I mean? In his memories, has he spent this amount of time kind of watching the whole thing happen? Um, or has he always kind of stayed hidden behind that 
that ladder, you know what I mean? That's kind of covering half of his face, but one eye is exposed. And has he always stayed hidden? Um, and now he's kind of coming out and he's like seeing it for real for the first time, thus confronting his feelings about it. Um, that speaks to an activeness, which I don't think a kind of a, a fatalism articulates necessarily. You know what I mean? I wonder if so, I, which makes me think the ending is not necessarily happy, but that it is not as um, uh, faded as Calvinistic. Cal- Again, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time with Calvinism on this podcast recently. Um, <laughs> sure. Then, 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 it, then I think it, it can be perceived based on, like, I guess, some of those things that he said. No, I, I, I it's it's weird because I almost look at the honorary doctorate, and and this is maybe is a reach, but I almost look at the honorary doctorate from like a like a bird. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to put Borg as as a facsimile for Bergman well, himself. You, but or, I think you can do that because a lot of people are doing that. I mean, I actually think most people that review this movie review it from the perspective that you he was using. Borg as a way to both um as a way to confront his feelings as well as put himself in this perspective I think of his parents who apparently are very were very cold and withholding and um yeah we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. when I talk about persona um what, the reason I look at that is cuz I see the honorary doctor as kind of this like fill in for smiles of a summer night you know the so? film that sets him the film that makes sets him apart you know the film that that puts igmar bergman onto the pedestal of swedish cinema okay he had been there for like 15 years already writing um you know he started out writing and directing crisis he had written some films before then but you know he had had um prisoner prisoner i believe um it's a prisoner or prison uh he had prison and um summer interlude and uh, Saldas and Tinsel, like before this, which are films he constantly kind of mentions as being something that mm. he feels are close to the chest and close yeah, to the self. Interesting. Um, and I wonder, you know, going with him at the time, you know, going with him at, at, at the moment in time in which he's frozen here, 1957, still extremely early in his career, you know, um, Jane Magnuson did a documentary in 2018 called Bergman a year in the life where, you know, like during this year, his, his marriage to um, gun Gert, you know, is failing as his third wife. Um, things with him and BB Anderson are already starting to fall apart. Um, and this is also the year where he meets his, what ends up being his fourth and fifth wife. He's also at this time taking over um, the national, the Royal national theater, which yeah. is basically administratively a mess. Um, you know, just just garbage mm-hmm. at that at this time, and, and like he, this is what leads to him going into the hospital. Just all these things coalescing at once, and and the reason I look at this is kind of like this like introspection on life because you have that scene where Borg is asked about the words on the wall, and this guy repeated again in silence with kind of um, I think it's silence, uh, basically language that he can't read uh-huh. um and susan sontag says you know in a sign and sound review i think it's actually on our persona review says that cinema is a natural home of those who don't 
trust language, a natural index of the weight, and suspicion lodged the contemporary sensibility against the word. Um, you know, and it keeps coming back. Like this, there's this like this inability to form language, and, and okay. you know, Borg to me comes off as like like this feels so prescient in, in the time in which he made it because it feels as though there is no language. Like mm, he why? does say in images, you know, like. You know, it's a desperate attempt to, to justify himself with his parents because there's everything. Everything's falling on his shoulders at that mm. time. See, it's funny because I actually think I I, I, and, I I didn't know I felt the opposite but I, when I was watching it. But I wonder if I feel the opposite because I wonder if part of what he's dealing with is that he feels like he has a language for dealing with life. And it's the same language that Evald speaks, which is I think of why that conversation with Marianne comes as such a revelation to him is because him and his son are speaking the same language. He doesn't want his son to speak that language. And so the movie is possibly like him trying to find a new language to express like what yeah, he's I, feeling. That's the thing. I feel like he thinks he has a language and he, he attempts to, to, you know, like when he has that Playboy interview where he says like the people will never change, you know, what's interesting about Bergman it's just it's this pure earnest bleeding on the screen of just, you know, being so unavailed by pretense. Um, I can't remember review it is like actually actually Roger Ebert mentions this in his review of Persona talking. He just mentions an IMDb reviewer Bobby. saying it's interesting how a a um, a movie that feels so pretentious can be not pretentious. And that's the thing is like, it, it does like, while strawberries feels as though it's, it's this conflicted thing. It's this conflicted animal. You know, he's bringing in people from his past, the people that, that drove him. Phantom Carriage is a movie he saw from the age of 15. Yep. And would watch every year. You know, he's bringing in Victor Strogstrom. He's, Vic, he's bringing in, you know, bringing back BB Anderson, who's he's having this brought relationship with. He's writing this film in the midst of the first of what would be three kind of major four major mental like breaks of his, he wrote this in the hospital in hospital. Um, so there's a real rawness and vulnerability. And I think we're kind of both right in this. I think we're both right in this. His he's, you know, five years later after silence and playboy saying like, people will never change. This is what they are. And you're saying like, there's this attempt to change there's this attempt to grow. And I think it, I think it is because I think there's like there's this ultimate human skin upon this film that is vulnerable and ever and just utterly kind of fascinating. You know, looking at Sarah itself, Sarah is just you know if, if if we're to believe what he mentions in Magic Lantern, um, just a, an actual girl that he was infatuated with in his uh -huh. summer house in his childhood. This girl named uh, Liana, who you know, he was fascinated with, he would like go swimming with her. And like, it was the first woman he ever felt like a real sexual urge for and sexuality punctuates his entire filmography. Um, and in Magic Lantern even mentions that he says like 40 years later, I asked mother what happened to her. Um, and she told me that the girl had been pregnant and the man had denied paternity, has a pastor's family, could hardly house a pregnant servant girl. Father was forced to dismiss her despite mother's violent protest. A few months later, she was found near a railway station, wedged under a sunken log with a contusion on her forehead. The police assumed she had thrown herself off the bridge. That happens, yeah. You know, and and he had mentioned like he had mentioned like picking the the strawberries <clears throat> for her. Uh -huh. You know, and, and the thing that I find like for me that makes wild strawberries 
I mean, I think of the two films, Wild Strawberries kind of hit more to the heart, is it's such a, it's a film made before he has the language. I feel as though he makes it with this fatalistic Nitschke approach. You know, in the 30s and 40s, he's, he talks about being a child who was so infatuated with Nitschke and being that weird, awkward kid talking about Nitschke. And he's holding on to that still. He's a man of, at this time, what, he's like 36, 37 still? Still young. Yeah. He still hasn't found his voice. He's now just finally entering national worldwide, pro- and he's going to enter worldwide prominence. And he has this opinion of himself here, which I feel is true. And he's getting his idol onto screen. You know, he, he, he finds a way to get his idol. He, he, he makes the exception to stop shooting at 4.30 every day so that Victor can go home and have his, his whiskey at five. You know, he's, he's putting himself out there. Um, and it's a wildly fascinating movie because it's from this psychological perspective, just everything all at once and yeah. nothing all at once. Yeah, it's um, it's funny you mentioned Nietzsche. This article by this essay by Jamie Hecht from American Imago ends with the last it word. Sounds, on- it sounds like you also did your research on this, Tom. <laughs> I did some research. Well, I did. A, I, it's funny because I did more research. I didn't do any research on Persona because I have my own thoughts on Persona. But like this one, I was like, I don't know. Like I, I, I definitely feel more things than I felt with like. Hazard, Balthazar, and Ordet, but like on the surface, they look like similar movies, and they kind of operate like in a- in aspects of them and in 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 portions of them, they a- they operate on kind of the same level, um, which is not an accident, I'm sure. Um, but one of the, and Jamie Hecht in that that Freud magazine that I mentioned to you ends it by saying the last word on this subject, meaning like wild strawberries, belongs to Nietzsche. We have our lest we die of the truth. And I think, like, from everything you're saying, Bergman kind of was able to take all those aspects of his life and kind of put them in this film, as we kind of, as we kind of heard in the, in, in the opening there. Um, he, and he put them in this film, but... And those things are true. Those things happened. Those are... That's autobiography. But placed in the context of the film, it becomes something else. So we can't necessarily say for certain that it's relative to his parents or it's relative to his experience or whatever. Um, it's simultaneously, like you said, all of those things and none of those things. You know what I mean? He's yeah. turned the, his autobiography into a, a completely different, a completely different thing. It's, it, it means something different. It is something different. And because of that, it means something different. Um, and I, I think from that perspective, this movie is like really, really, really interesting. I'm yeah. very sweaty. And the annex, <laughs> annex eleven, that's, Mario is very sweaty. That's why. That's why I'm actually on the pivotal film's third floor right yeah. now. It's funny. Uh, Lord's Casden is seventy floors above me, <laughs> we're, slamming scripts down onto me. We we are going to get air conditioning in almost every single room of this annex, except for where I am recording. <laughs> I'm, I'm recording it, so this should be um, good. I really quickly before you jump off, I, I yeah, want yeah, to quickly talk about some of the some of the things that are really impressive in this. Um, Victor Stolstrom oh, like, was 78 oh years old. Oh my god, amazing. He's, he's fucking fantastic in this. I, I think like even you know Bergman talks about that. Um like when he was filming Crisis, like Stolstrom had kind of come up to him. Uh Crisis being his like first feature he directed and just said, like, you're doing this all wrong. Mm. You know, like do it this way and this way and this way and this way, blah, 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 blah. You know, like 
you know, you make your scenes too complicated. You need to film the actress from the front. And you could see like everything he mentions. He talks about Yeah, he does it a lot. You see, you do that forever. Um, but he mentions in images. He says like, from the very beginning, the R. Solstrom was overwhelming. He made the movie that to me was the film of all films. Um, you know, talking about Phantom Carriage. Uh, what I had not grasped until now was that Victor Solstrom took my text, the text of Wild Strawberries, made it his own, invested in his own experiences, his pain, and his misanthropy, his brutality, sorrow, fear, loneliness, coldness, warmness, harshness, and a new. I heard that too, yeah. There wasn't even a crumb left over for me. I had nothing to add, not even a sensible or rational comment. Wild Strawberries is no longer my film, it's Victor Solstrom's. And he mentions later on in a Dick Cavett um, interview where he talks about the greatest shot he has. And it's that shot of Victor Stolstrom's face yep. at the end. Um, he's actually looking out at his parents. Um, uh-huh. And he, they actually had to hold him past 4.30. To get yeah. the shot? To get the shot, because the lighting needed to be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Solstrom, and just, Solstrom just lost his shit. He was <laughs> unhappy. <laughs> like, Solstrom didn't want to really do this movie from the get-go. He had like kind of like fought quietly against it um but mm. i said like i i will do this if you know we're done by 4 30 um but then he talks about how like once they had had this argument this agreement like this one time they finally like, sound down and Solstrom just had that look on his face and the thing is like i remember watching that scene you watch that scene and wait for the smile to creep up i know and it never comes no i know i know the, the smile feeling. never yep. comes and you're waiting for it and that's just, but you, you still get that sense of contentment. Well, that's you know, the thing. But it comes at the end, magnet. though. It like that little that little kind of like upwards turning crescent comes like when he turns over in his sleep a little bit. But it it doesn't. Does it come? It does. It like a little bit. And again, I I think a movie is working, and I think an actor is doing an amazing job when you can question whether or not the smile on his face is a smile. And that's the thing. Like, I, like that's the thing that's so magical about this movie to me. And I'll say this. I respond more to Wild Strawberries. I don't know why, because Persona's in every way the better film. Yeah, we'll get but there. Personally, personally, I respond to Wild Strawberries so much more hmm. because it feels like this magnetic performance where everything is congealing together. Well, it's weird because... Everyone, everyone is... is you know, he mentions in that South Bank interview with Melvin Bragg, he's like, you know, Bragg talks about like working with that nucleus of people. And Bergman says, like, if you're very close to create atmosphere of real confidence, something happens in front of the camera. Yeah. That's the most beautiful thing that exists. And Wild Strawberries feels like this. It's a synergy. It's a live like persona feels like a very feels like the careful construction we expect Bergman to have in Virgin Spring and Seventh Seal. But Wild Strawberries to me felt living it feels as though it is um it feels as though we mentioned you know, that clip in the beginning of creating this universe that isn't real but it's close to real and wild strawberries fits that for me because it feels like we've fucking taken a scalpel and cut out a bit of a life and and removed it and we're looking at it and it bleeds mm. and it breathes and it's going to exist after and it's going to exist before and I don't know if his other films have that. Well, it's weird because I think Persona, if we're comparing these two movies, we're going to get to Persona in a little bit. Um, is this one it hedges towards realism? I mean, it has the dream sequences in them, but they're framed as dream sequences. They're not and, framed. And yeah, and they're, they're not framed as as slices of reality. They're not stra- framed as like a, a character's version of reality. 
it is reality and in reality includes dreams. Whereas persona, their dreams, you know, something have. different. Their, dream, their dreams you and I could have yeah. that people have in, in wild strawberries. They are real dreams. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's um there. It's from that perspective. It has to, to say something stupid. It has more heart than persona. Although, um, that's the stupidest fucking thing you've ever seen. It feels really dumb to say. But to go back to Sornstrom's um, performance, I kept... It's weird. I, I don't know enough about acting and the history of acting to kind of say anything definitive about anything that he did. But it felt like this weird turning point between, like, you know, classicist, like, you know, the 30s to the, to the, to the mid-50s kind of talkies, where you had this kind of very... Uh, wrote like hit your marks type of performance. You know what I mean? Where like, there's not a lot happening. It's just, and um, like modernist, like Brando type stuff where he's not, he's not in embodying the character in the same way as, as like Brando and De Niro and like the whole, the whole ilk of those people. And I get it. I don't know enough about acting to kind of say like who they are, but I kept waiting for him to do some of those things because the emotion in his performance was more legitimate than most of the things I had seen. I've seen from this era. You know what I mean? By the end of the film, he is visually without any sound, without him having to say anything broken down. You know what I mean? Mm. He is, when he's watching his wife have that affair, he is breaking. Like, you can see it on camera that he is breaking. Whether or not you know it's his wife or not, like, when he sees the baby, you know, he, or when he has the interrogation scene, and then he goes with Sarah to that crib or that bassinet under the tree, and then he sees the, the affair his wife is having, um, each step of that is marked by a different kind of internal fracture. Um, from his end and you can see it and it's really it's really kind of amazing amazing i mean they're gonna i mean i, mean, I think bb anderson and, and live Ullman kind of take it up a notch in in persona but that's um it, I think, it was I think, a pleasant surprise kind of, yeah i think it's actually a good good moment to to transition to yeah persona. let's take a break um yeah we will be right back to talk about persona All right, we're back, and we're talking about Persona. It is from 1966 on BFI Sight and Sound Critics List. It is actually two behind Alhazard Balthazar. Alhazard Balthazar is 16. Uh, Seventh Samurai is 17, inexplicably. Persona ties it at 17, followed by Mirror at 19. So let's, I mean, Seventh Samurai, Persona, and Mirror, that's an amazing run of movies. I feel, I mean, they should be pushed up more than where they are. Past Above, uh, many, many things that are that are before it. Like Elazar Balthazar, which like, came out in 1966. Which is insane, which is insane. So Persona... Like, literally watch Elazar Balthazar and Persona back-to-back and tell me that those two movies that come out... Uh, Persona comes out in October. Who the fuck cares when Elazar Balthazar comes out? They probably shouldn't have come out. Fuck yeah. you, Bresson. You've made some good movie. But tell me those two movies are on the same level. Uh, no, it's, it's insane. Um... I think one of the interesting things about Persona is that a lot of people are probably going to be more aware of Persona than they they know that they're aware of Persona. There's some shots in Persona that are uh, amongst the most famous shots in the history of film. Um, and some people, 
people are more aware of Phantom Carriage than they are, than they realize. Phantom Carriage has the uh, act scene uh, that is then redone with Jack Torrance in The Shining. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Very good, Stanley Kubrick. You did something right in The Shining. Um, it is a story of uh, Elizabeth, who is an actress, and one night while she's performing a lecture. Stage actress. Stage actress. Stage and actress. one night when she's performing Electra, she she goes quiet and she feels like she wants to laugh. And from that moment, she hasn't spoken a word since. And she is in a psychiatric facility and uh, she is uh, taken care of or she is charged. The woman charged with taking care of her in that psychiatric facility is a young woman named Alma, played by B.B. Anderson. Uh, she feels like she's the right person for a moment. She feels like she's the right person to take care of Elizabeth because she's young and she'll understand her. And, um, the, the head doctor there or the nurse or whatever thinks that it might be a good idea for, for Elizabeth to get out of the hospital. And so she sends her to her summer house, which is this beautiful modernist house that Bong Joon-ho clearly has taken careful note of with its windows, with its, you know, floor to ceiling windows and, and, and how you can use that space and things like that. Um, and while they are there, they begin a, a friendship, a, a, uh, a relationship, a, a pseudo sexual relationship, a psychologically destructive relationship for sure. But a relationship in which Bergman wants us to perceive that they have in a way, transferred selves not necessarily consciousness because we can't ever know what elizabeth is thinking and we only ever know what we know what alma is thinking all the time because she's always telling us what she's thinking because she's the only one that can talk and she talks constantly um and these are the shots that i'm talking about where that are amongst the most famous in history that the super imposition which is not the not the correct wording, but that's what I'm going to go with of their two faces on each other to create a single face. There's the profile and, and frontal shot that kind of creates this, this kind of Picasso esque. And I think Picasso is actually kind of a major influence on this film, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, until BB Anderson's Alma doesn't really know who she is anymore. And it erupts in, uh, tremendous act uh, a thrilling act of violence um and then it ends i mean it ends when it ends and you know it is kind of what it is to a certain point except for the fact that it isn't because throughout this movie bergman is inserting himself uh, as a kind of authorial voice in the form of uh montages kind of you know uh abstract montages or or the film being destroyed in the middle of, of, of the movie, or even at the end of the movie, a shot of Nyquist and Bergman on a crane shooting the movie as Alma is getting in a car to leave the island. Um, I'm going to, I'll turn it, I'm going to throw it you through, um, well, it's strawberries to me. I'm going to throw it to you, Mario. I'm going to throw it to you. Before I kind of say how I feel about Persona. 
which oh is, god which is a movie to be fair that i i saw like when i originally started into criterion persona was one of the movies i saw i saw it because roger ebert told me to see it um i saw it from a different perspective now than i saw it then uh because back then i didn't really see things like this i just saw like i said what roger ebert told me to see and i saw what roger ebert wanted me to see and that was kind of how i as like he's a puppet master or like a david koresh figure or something like that um cult leader but continue go ahead i'm sorry well to preface this let's not forget what peter Colley said everything one says about persona may be contradicted the opposite will also be true yes let's not forget that mm. persona what it's 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 hard it's hard um did you like it I do. I, I I like it. I love it on yeah. a much different level than I love Wild Strawberries. I love Wild Strawberries on a level that feels closer to the heart, whereas Persona feels as though it is a filmmaker's language more carefully delineated. Um, but at the same time, man, you still got you still got it, it feels more raw and personal at points. And it's hard. I still am grappling with how I feel about Persona. It's it's original title is Cinematographique when he wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not written as Persona. It was Persona was like the fifth name I believe he chose. Like when he tried to choose Cinematographique as its title, he also like I said wrote this in Hospital. This is when he's dealing with um, the lung ailment. Um, that would kind of form itself as almost pneumonia. Uh, you know, the, I can't remember the studio. I think it's, this is still, is he still doing this with, um, yeah, he's still doing a Svetskin film industry. Um, when he tried to do, when he tried to say like, oh, the film's called basically cinematography. They're like, you're fucking not calling this movie cinematography. Um, nor should it be called cinematography <laughs> no um and he went through like several different titles like uh a sonata of a sonata of two women nice um opus 25 i believe was another title and he eventually settles on persona and this feels like like it's tackling so many of the same thing that, that that wild strawberries are trying to tackle uh but in a much more delineated language of film um but what's interesting to me that to hear is this one feels closer to the chest because i feel as though it deals this inherently to me feels like it's dealing with his relationship with his mother and why you know this is no no this is the take i'm coming from this um you look at kind of that really ultimate scene um a lot of these things kind of just echo back to his his memories of his childhood um that really great monologue by b anderson which she actually rewrote yeah most of it herself yep. uh because she was like listen uh bergman you know like you're I, i'm reading what you wrote and this is reads like a man and she rewrote it about the sex scene with um basically the stranger very young, the, beach, yeah. the very young strangers and her and, and 
if you, in Magic Lantern, he talks about his own same sexual experiences at eight or nine with an older woman who he's living with at the time. Um, but later he brings up in images, uh, I was quite sure I had been an unwanted child growing out of a cold room, one whose birth resulted in crisis, both physical and psychological. Later, my mother's diary verified this notion of mine. Faced with this wretched, almost dying child, she had feelings that were decidedly ambivalent. Yeah. And, you know, we deal with this ultimate catharsis uh, between, you know, Ullman and Anderson dealing with this relationship of mother with child. And, and that punctuates this film mm. more than... I believe the relationship of father and son does in wild strawberries. Well, it's um, funny because that's that just, just for the sense that like magic lantern, there's, there's an ambivalence towards the punishments that his father would dole unto him. Whereas he talks kind of incessantly um, about sort of the punishments his, his mother would deal out. He talks about in, um, in the Dorn, um, God, I have it right here. In the uh, <clears throat> Dorn Donner film, um, about like how his mother, like when he would pee himself, like would kind of put him in a pink skirt, <laughs> and also later about how he was always trying to like grab her and hold her and hug her. Yep. Um, he talks about this both in the interview with Donner and also in Magic Lantern, and she referred him to a psychologist who basically said that this is not how a boy should act. And I feel as though that's really inherent in the fact that one of the first images you see is, you know, if we're talking about postmodern cinema, the very David Fincher-esque erect penis, you know, the true absolute figure of masculinity is, is an erect penis. And the fact that this film ultimately hinges on an unwanted child, a child who just wants to be held and loved. And that first mm. beautifully sequenced, like opening eight minutes, um, uh, that focuses in on that child. That's just kind of grasping at that image of the mother out of focus on the screen. Like to me, this, this, this does feel like a film where he has a strength of language now to reach out and to try to fix those demons. Well, it's funny and because all your, that's, yeah, all the things you're saying, it's funny because that quote too is referenced in one of the articles I have in regards to Wild Strawberries. Which um, one? The, the one about um, the, the, the magic lantern, the one about the mother, yeah. yeah. Um, the, or the growing up an unwanted child with cold parents uh, and all that from, other stuff. From, from, from images, yeah. So that's, um, that's referenced in, in regards to, to that, um, to Wild Strawberries. I come at it from a different angle. Um, I think this is an artist movie about being an artist and about being authentic and about being uh, what it means to be yourself. Is there such a thing when you're an artist as a self? I think the child thing for me boils down to Elizabeth trying to establish another pose for herself. You know what I mean? Trying to establish another version of herself, trying to find the most true version of herself and seeing if motherhood is can be that version i mean I, I find this movie endlessly fascinating I, we talked a little bit about when we did um ordet and jean dealman about the greatest movies of all time and i'm as we do this sight and sound listen i hope we don't abandon it because i'm actually getting a lot out of it 
I'm seeing more clearly what I would put on on a an, an attempt to be objective greatest films of all time list. And Personas definitely would be one of those. Um, but if you were making a, a list of films about what it means to be an artist, I think Persona is probably the greatest of all of those movies for the sole reason that it questions the idea of what you put out into the world and who, how the, the person that puts that thing out into the world subsequently grapples with their, the nature of their self um, along the, in, in context with that thing that they just, that they just did. So we get a lot of, um, like you said, we get the, the, the scene when they're having conversations about the sun, um, the sun, you know, and, and Alma kind of references this, that it's just, motherhood is just another role for Elizabeth, but it also, you get all these shots when like, when Elizabeth is watching the Vietnam footage of, of, uh, those, those people, you know, self-immolating, um, on the streets. A, a scene that's that's later reused by, um, not a scene, but like a scene that's kind of mimicked later on uh, by Martin McDonald for Seven Psychopaths. Right. Like he's trying to use, he tries to use it for the same emotional affect. And I think it's it's the same meaning. It's it's the it's a search for it's a search for the best version of yourself. And she sees these people making movements, and I love. Oh my god, it's so fucking hard to watch. But I think it's hard to watch because of the way that that Bergman uses it. The way that that one guy. I'm that one person um, is on fire and then it, it, they collapse on their elbow and Bergman goes back to that shot a couple of times in that sequence, three, to three times, I think just back to, and it's, it's because it's, there's a movement there and she's looking for, she's looking for truth in movements. And I think one of the reasons that she laughs in, in, when she's doing Electra is because it's not true. Whatever she's doing is not true to her anymore. And that laughter for some reason feels like the most, the most true thing. So we talked about Roger Ebert's review and I'm not hundred percent sure I agree with him. I feel like it's a very surface level review. One of the things that I do think he says that is true is when they're having this fight and Alma is kind of desperate to get Elizabeth to say something. And, and Alma has, or Elizabeth has written this letter to her, to her doctor and she's talking about how she's manipulating Alma. And, you know, she's talking to her about this abortion that Alma had um, because she got pregnant from that stranger on the beach and whatever. And Alma would just kind of lose it. Like you're using me. You're just, you know, it's all a roll. It's all a roll. And she goes to throw some hot water on her. And that's the one time we hear Elizabeth talking. She says, no, don't. And, oh. Because and, and Ebert says in his review, he's like, oh, it's the one moment she's we get a sense of we don't get a sense necessarily of who she is, but we get a sense of what she wants. And she doesn't it's, want it's, to, it's, that's what he, he mentions, like the to be or not to be right. Like she doesn't want to feel pain. She doesn't want to die. Yeah. She wants to um, she wants to she live. wants to exist. She wants to. Yeah. And I think and part of me thinks one of the reasons I fault that review is because I think he thinks that that's the end all be all of this conversation that like it's a movie about living and dying and she wants to live, but she doesn't know how best to live, I think. But I think in reality, it's and I think Bergman's kind of like lording over this production. I mean, to great effect is um a testament to the fact that it's not necessarily about like wanting to live. It's about questioning the thing that you, the, 
from an artist's perspective, questioning the thing that you do, questioning the thing that is yourself. Is this enough of yourself? Is this your truest self? Is being an artist really enough to justify all the things that you have to sacrifice to be an artist? Um, and that's kind of, that's what I got out of it. And it's, I, I mean, it's, a, I think it's amazing on every level. I think Liv Allman and B.B. Anderson are, um, utterly fantastic. Um, I think all of, I think almost every shot is better than almost every shot in most movies I've ever seen. Um, I love that quote that Roger Ebert says from that just random guy in IMDb that like, how could a movie that's so pretentious feel so not pretentious because that's exactly what happens. But you get these weird shots of like naked vulnerability, especially from Liv Ullman, like right before the scene where they double right before that scene, right as that scene starts, you get that shot of Liv Ullman just like sitting at the table, just kind of waiting. You don't know what she's waiting for. She's just waiting. And obviously she's waiting for BB Anderson to come in and yell at her. Um, But it's not, played necessarily as a manipulation it's nor is it played as like a theater piece but the shot that he uses it's this great medium shot of her just sitting at the table is so like she's so open and she's so ready to to hurt um emotionally she wants to experience that truth um i was i was just blown away and there's a million shots like that there's like the whole movie is littered with shots like that it's, it's amazing. I think what I find interesting is this is this concept of there's this overwhelming sense of weird pleasure in the film, really mm. sensual yep. pleasure Agree. in it. Um, and it's that s- strict conflict with kind of the thesis of the, of the film. And it's what it feels like would be the thesis on surface level of the film, you know, where Alma kind of urges her to say, urges Elizabeth to say nothing, to say like nothing matters. It, it is all, all facsimile, all fiction. Yep. Um, and, and it feels as though it's like in this strict um, juxtaposition to, to what's going on. Um, and Peter Colley kind of, I, I want to look at that opening scene. You look at that, that just magical brilliant opening scene of just these all these shots and you have the film come into being mm-hmm. you know you 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 see the dust and and, and the um uh, it's not tungsten but the the spark of film it's a lamp lighting in like inside yeah, the projector the lamp lighting, exactly um from dust at what follows to me is, is, and I agree with you in a lot of ways, because what follows is this weird sort of reflection on like Bergman's history in itself. Um, you see the upside down images of cartoons, and he mentions this in, uh, in images um, about how he himself would, and you know, when he got the magic lantern, the, the projection, uh, the projector, um, how he would like play images of cartoons or he himself would find blank uh, reels of film and draw cartoons on it. Mm-hmm. And later on you get uh, the image of that kind of silent film 
uh, slapstick moment. Yeah. And that's just directly taken from a moment in, in one of his early films um, in prison, uh, which has like this moment where like, people, like these, the actors in the film are kind of watching a slapstick moment happen. Uh, and there's these other kind of reflections from other of his other films like Magician, um, you know, the glass breaking and whatnot. And it's, it's just this, it's this weird kind of like culmination and ideas um, of, of thoughts of film. And I agree with you there. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of just like his contemplations on what it means to be an artist. And mm. when he's still in hospital before Persona, he writes this really great article called Snakeskin. Mm. It's written for the Air Massist Awards, uh, which he wasn't able to attend. He was, I think he was going to receive an award there. Uh-huh. Um, and he just couldn't attend because he was sick. He had that, you know, that pneumonia type illness. Not COVID. Not COVID. Not COVID 65. Oh my God. Um, it's funny. I've been kind of, I, I've, the protests have kind of focused my attention on the protests and like the soul of America. And I haven't like been hyper vigilant about COVID, but yeah. also I haven't really left my house all that often except to take the kids to go swimming today. Um, so, so it's one of those, so, th- it's just weird. Yeah. It's still there. It's still there, folks. Yeah. You're still he there. mentions, he mentions in this, um, he mentions in this in this essay he says like to be completely honest i regard art and not only the art of cinema as lacking importance by and large art is free shameless irresponsible and as i said the movement is intense almost feverish it resembles it seems to me a snake skin full of ants a snake itself is long since dead eaten out from within deprived of its poison but the skin moves filled with busy life and he mm. says and he keeps talking he says, like, we, we, we see art for sentimental reasons or for nervous citizens of leisure. And he says, I, I keep making art for one reason, and this reason is curiosity. Mm-hmm. An unbounded, never satisfied, continuously renewed, unbearable curiosity. And he says it keeps bringing him forward that he feels like a prisoner who has served a long sentence and suddenly, like, tumbled into a booming, howling, snorting world outside. And he's seized by this curiosity. And he mentions what I find interesting in the very end of, not the very end, just the very end of the statement in Snakeskin. He says, I capture, um, I observe, I have eyes, my eyes with me. Everything is unreal, fantastic, frightening, or ridiculous. I capture a flying particle of dust, perhaps as a film, and of what importance will be, will that be? None whatsoever, but I find it interesting. So it's a film. I revolve with objects I have captured for myself and am cheerfully or melancholic melancholically occupied I elbow my way in with the other ants we do a colossal job the snakes can lose and that's what it feels like to, it, it does it has these this movie feels like this this massive synergy between the demons he's carrying you know and and the prevalence of the demons that weigh upon his his back bergman's back punctuate throughout his entire career but blended with this insatiable appetite for creativity, this insatiable appetite to reflect upon what he's done and what he will do and taking those hallmarks and that talent and those skills 
and those things he's learned from Soulstrom and learned from his contemporaries and learned from the nucleus um, that he mentions uh, and combining it into this living artistic being. And, and it, it's this constant, Persona feels like this constant playing with ideas and with form in order to not only excise his own demons, but not to only excise his own demons from his personal life, but also to excise the necessities he needs from a creative level. Yeah, that's... Um, excising this necessity he needs from uh, his own demons or from his creative life is interesting. And I wonder if it's also... It can be stated as... Not that he's trying to excise them, but as he's trying to... Live in them, maybe, would be better. Or integrate them into yeah. a kind of, like, cohesive, um, not self, but, like, a, an artistic self. So when I mentioned, I mentioned Picasso before, he is constantly, the, the composition of this film constantly puts these women in positions, seemingly, that they don't belong in. And I'm thinking of, specifically, you know, there's there's the you know, uh, superimposing the two faces together. There's the profile in the, in the, in the frontal thing. There's even the, um, there's even the, the scene, you know, the mirror scene when they kind of look like for a second, like they have two heads and they're, they're, they're nestling each other that they're, they're, you know, maybe not Siamese twins, but they're conjoined twins or something. There's also a couple of scenes where they're smoking, where it looks like, you know, uh, Liv Ullman's arm is coming out of BB Anderson's head. Um, and I, I wonder if it's, if it's, kind of what you're describing is is taking place there that he's really trying he's really trying to kind of blow everything up and then put it back together and each scene is an attempt of him to kind of reconcile all of those feelings that you just described him having and then seeing how they come out you know what i mean um and so things end up like the women end up kind of in in weird shapes and in weird positions and they make kind of strange their emotions are strange you don't know what they know versus what they don't know like did you know Roger Ebert seems to believe that Alma put that piece of glass there on purpose but part of me thinks that she just left it there by accident but then she noticed that the glass was there and then left the glass to just kind of see what would happen could she get her to talk if she stepped on the glass um you know, it's an attempt. These are all attempts, and they illustrate Bergman's attempt to kind of, you know, uh, finalize an artistic version of himself that maybe he's comfortable with, or maybe that includes all the things, all the biographical things that you just said, or maybe helps heal all the autobiographical things that you just said. So while a lot of these people that I'm reading have talked about Wild Strawberry as being like a healing element in Bergman's life, like maybe... Maybe you're right, and so maybe we've, we're back at nothing. And maybe you're right, and he doesn't feel that way. Maybe every single movie he makes is a new attempt to kind of achieve some kind of closure on what he feels his life was. And well, I think the interesting thing is that Persona is... Uh, he creates Persona in a way that lets us be okay with not ever knowing the answer to that question. Because the 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 journey to get to to get to the question to figure out what the right question is is just so mesmerizing that it's really all that matters i think right and there's a yeah. there's a wild strawberries element in that too 
and I would I would agree. Like I I remember like seeing this. I I, I kept wanting to compare it side by side with something like Lunchy and Andalou or, or of course or just yeah more just kind of like Dolly's work like like not even Dolly's cinematic work but more Dolly's imagery but I would I would compare it to Lunchy and Andalou and um you know you can't because as Susan Sontag says like in her sight and sound review she says you know Bergman withholds a kind of clear signals for sorting out what's fantasy from the real offered um, and then she doesn't mention Unchi Andalou, but she talks about like Belle de Jour. And she's like, Bunnell put the clues there. You know, yeah. He wants them to be able to decipher the film. Um, but she says the insufficiency of the clues Bergman has planted must be taken to indicate that he intends the film to remain partially encoded. The viewer can only move towards but never achieve certainty about the actions. And I, I think as though that is not just the purposeful i don't think necessarily that's the purposeful intention of the film but i feel as though this resembles somebody who's so profoundly in tune with the control of his film you know he's finally filming his he has this and he has a i think through glass darkly right before that he films on faro um the island he's bound to live for out the remainder of his life um excluding that little tax evasion sojourn to West Germany. Um, <laughs> we all made one of but, those in our life, Maya. Yeah. But he has he has this kind of soundness of mind, but he doesn't necessarily have this soundness of form or of identity yet. And it's something he struggles with forever. You know, he mentions it in his uh, Jean Donner on life and work of saying like, you know, as he gets older, he feels like he's further and further away from his identity, further and further away from who he is. Um, he always had this like weird circumspection of Bergman, the person versus Bergman, the creator. Um, well, I think scenes from that's what persona feels like. Persona feels like this juxtaposition, not juxtaposition, but this, this conflation between what well, Bergman was trying to say like what he feels and what he's trying to put on screen and, and what that means even to himself. It's funny because I always see it. I see scenes from a marriage as being more of that movie because just the idea. Which I still haven't seen. Well, see, so he's making a movie about marriage, which I think, um, you know. Which he was very familiar with as a, at that point. But, <laughs> right. But I think part of. So I'm thinking about. Um, the I think thinking about the idea that he was very familiar with it. And I'm also thinking about the idea that marriage is perceived as to be a, a certain thing you know what i mean it's perceived to be an end in and of itself and in reality um as is written about in the new york times every single day of the week um you know marriage is a kind of constant um you know series of, of decisions it's a kind of it's a tree which like with like branches that are constantly shooting off of like the main trunk or other smaller branches or whatever. And it kind of has to be constantly re negotiated and reestablished and, 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 um, re invigorated or re whatever. And I think he thinks, I think he kind of gets himself in the position where he keeps thinking that's going to happen and it doesn't. So from that perspective, like scenes from marriage strikes me more as the movie that like does that than persona, but per perhaps persona kind of gets the ball rolling. And especially because scenes from marriage can from in persona from a composition standpoint are so different. 
Like he's just throwing everything at the wall in Persona and in Scenes from Marriage. It's a much more, you know, still visually movie. striking, but it's a it's a it's so tame in comparison to that. No, it's 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 fascinating because he's he's a man who seems so unsure of himself, like throughout his lifespan. Um, but it has such a certainty of hand in his film, mm-hmm. you know, in his filmmaking, that it it's it's always wildly ambiguous as to what his intent was. If the intent was there, or you know, if the intent of not necessarily the intent of what he would show you on the screen, because that was always there, but the intent of what you took from it was yeah. there. Well, that's I mean, one of the reasons I like Persona more than I like Wild Strawberries, which is not to say anything necessarily against Wild Strawberries, is that I was concerned about the intent in Wild Strawberries, and I did not give a shit about whatever the intent of Persona was. I considered and I considered what it would be, I considered what the point would be. I didn't consider his autobiography in any way in watching Persona. I just I assumed it was an the work of an artist trying to grapple with what it means to be himself or herself. Um, but I think that's the nature of Persona versus Wild Strawberries. I mean, when you have when the penultimate scene of Persona is a, a monologue repeated twice from different perspectives, the uh, you know, combination of a face, a woman scratches another woman on the arm and then the other woman, like, puts her mouth on the blood. Like, you know you're not dealing with a movie that's kind of looking at the world in a rational, normal way. You know what I mean? This film is looking at the world in an, in an abstract, obscurist kind of fashion. Um, and to what effect, I suppose is dependent on the the viewer, which is another reason I love Persona, because I think everyone that watches it is going to see it completely differently. Well, yeah, that's what's fascinating, is is, is Persona to me is a more complicated film because I, I feel like there is more certainty of of hand in, in Wild Strawberries, at least certainty in, in where he was in his mindset in Wild Strawberries than there is in Persona. I feel Persona as he says in images, you know, like he has this fertile ground of, of demons of neurosis and, you know, just that, that's, that's just such a major part of it. It's just like, it feels as though for me, persona is these demons just kind of coming out as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Like there's a real, there's a real, like, like, kind of, like, Sean Borman says, like, you know, the demons to do with his childhood and, and the religious imprint on him, and there's like this real, at least to me, like, there's this real religiosity to to Persona, um, beyond you know the the the, the images of, of crucifixion, but well, more yeah. to more to the sense of 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 purity of self versus kind of this. Um, Protestant sort of circumspection of sexuality, hmm. um, you know, as, as Jean Revoir would kind of say, um, it, it feels as though there's, there's, it's, it's a much more, 
Wild Strawberries feels raw in the sense of, of honesty. Persona feels raw in the sense of a man who has his artistry down, but doesn't necessarily know where he is in life. Mm. Well, I think the fact that we kind of keep, you and me can say a couple of words and then stop and consider what the next words would be for a minute. Not because we don't necessarily know what we want to say about it, but because we have so many things that we can say about it, because every single image brings up a kind of, like you had pointed out in that quote in the beginning of, of us talking about persona, like every, everything you think in this can be contradicted in some way. And I feel like a viewer of it is going to experience that and go through that themselves when they watch it. Like you're going to think you understand it and then something else is going to happen. You're like, well, I don't know what this means now. Now, what does this mean? We're 54 years removed from this film and nobody's defined, created a definitive language for this film. Nobody's, nobody's settled upon a distinct opinion on what persona means. No. And it's, I, and I, that's, part of the reason that I love it and the fact it's one of the it's funny it's one of the movies that I, when I uh, that now that I watch and I read Roger Ebert who I have like an immense amount of respect for and I trust a lot I read it and it's you know it's a, it's a great film of his and I read his review and I'm just like I don't think he gets this movie like I know he thinks he gets it but I don't re- I really don't think he gets it and I can't say that about a lot of stuff and I would never kind of part of me would never believe that I could feel comfortable saying that about someone who's spent their whole life professionally, like studying film and writing about film and thinking about film. But I don't, I mean, I just think he misses it. And I think a lot of people probably miss it, but I also think that those people probably think that everyone else misses it too. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. I, I think, I think his opinion ends up saying the thing I'm most comfortable with is is assuming the most literal take. It, it's it's not so much a decidedly concrete opinion as much as it is a decidedly personal opinion. And I think that's what you have to take from Persona is is the way in which you approach it. Um, the way in which you approach it in the moment you approach it is is going to beat what you take from it because mm-hmm. there's. It's it's a multifaceted being. It is it is a film that has so many different pathways to to entry. Um, that outside of wildly incorrect takes, like Persona is a movie about the alien invasion in 1927. Is it? Um, I mean, it could be actually. Did you um, read that, that somewhere? Was that a Reddit? Was that a Reddit thread? That was a Woody Harrelson opinion. Um, <laughs> like outside of wildly, in, 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 you know askew takes like like any sort of astute criticism of this film has its merits you know is just is is for me kind of um synonymous with with the the impact that it has with with the modernity that exists within it with with the fact that unlike al hazard balthazar or, or its contemporary films or even you know a filmmaker like Woody Allen who, who tried to emulate um, uh, you know Bergman in many ways you know deconstructing Harry is 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 if if Henry is is nothing if the wild strawberries remake and he, he misses the mark because he doesn't have that sense of selflessness not selflessness is not the right word the sense of of self-awareness to 
put everything out. There, there's, there's no, there's Bergman had an ambivalence to posturing that that Woody Allen lacked. There's the same thing even with people I respect, a, a Paul Schrader. You know, Paul Schrader, even in a film I love, like First Reformed, has those moments of ostentatiousness that are are absent in Bergman. You know, Ooh, Bergman yeah. kind of pulls up his collar and lets it all be. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like First Reformed, though, we should – we're going to go back. I think the culture as a whole is going to go back to First Reformed in a number of years and be like, yeah, it's one of the great movies of all time. That's fair. But we I think missed the boat. I think there's moments in First Reformed, notably um, that kind of floating sequence. Nothing um, wrong with the floating which, sequence. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's a lack of breadth in terms of a filmmaking standpoint between that, that punctuate or bookmark that scene that have not necessarily a pretension to them, yep. but that, that lack a certain strength of lexicon in film. Here's what I would say. It's they're, they're they're a bit they're a bit disjointed. Here's it's what I would say about scene to scene. Here's what I would say about that scene. And listeners, you can take this however you want. I'm just being honest. Amanda Seyfried is better in the Scooby Doo movie than she is in First Reformed. So, you oh, know. I, was, I was thinking. I was thinking back to. Uh, the Matthew Lillard live action movies. I was like, she's in those movies. No, no, no. She's better in the new Scooby. I'm going to, we have never talked about the Scooby. That movie, movie. that movie, by the way, is called, called Scoob, Scoob. not Scooby-Doo. Scoop is not, is simultaneously terrible, but also like a lot of fun. But Amanda Seyfried is better in Scoob than she is in First Reformed. So it's hard for me to get on Paul Schrader's case for something that I'm pretty sure Amanda Seyfried's weird, just kind of disjointed, naive performance, um, well, you know, establishes in, in, uh, or, well, or doesn't allow to happen in a scene like that. Well, that's the thing. Like John Borman says about Bergman is like he had great charm with actors. He could find a performance from an actor unexpectedly. He had a certain way of talking, of taking from actors and burrowing it and finding something that I needed. And and this is not, I'm not discrediting other directors who are kind of taking from, or are, are, are honoring Bergman's memory, but Bergman's just this like monolith. He's a, he's different. Yeah. He's different. Like, like he would have found something from Seafried. He would have found something from Lindsay Lohan. He would have found something from Shia LaBeouf. Well, though I can't really say Shia LaBeouf anymore because Shia LaBeouf actually has found his Shia LaBeouf's kind of amazing, yeah. But I mean, here's yeah. the thing. But I feel like you can say the same thing about Tar- um... Taylor Taylor Lautner, you know? Okay, oh, uh, come on, Mario. Let's not go. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm assuming Taylor Lautner comes in to read for a Bergman movie, and Bergman's just like, oh, oh my God, put your shirt back on. This this movie doesn't call for that. Bergman goes, have you seen No Country for Old Men? And he says, no. Then he just brings out the cattle prod. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, Bergman, I, I'm, I'm anticipating the text message I get like six months from now. is like, I need to talk about this movie on the podcast. And it's some kind of obscure, weird Bergman thing that, you know, no one watches anymore. That's oh, not even no, a I, criteria, and that we're just like, oh, this, and, and mean, we both watch it. We're just like, yeah, it's amazing. It's a masterpiece. We're, 
we're touching, you know, we still have Fanny and Alexander and Hour of the Wolf to touch from the sight and sound. Well, Fanny Alexander shows up in the critics list, but Hour of the Wolf is still there. So like Bergman, somebody I'd, I'd kind of like want to revisit yeah. at some point. Well, and because the Criterion Channel is uh, a genius unto itself, we have the ability to do that. We do. So we thank do. you it's, very it's much. Great, it's a great thing. All right, Mario. We did it. We did it. Bergman. I think we're at three hours and 78 minutes. Actually, yeah, probably not that long. Under two hours still. That blows my mind. We're at 154 right now. I, I have a lot to still say about Bergman, but it didn't fit today. Well, write your essay. Today. You could be the first essay up on the site. Well, this, this it would not be an essay. It would be a monster. So write it. I'll just, I will just write a. Do a, a, I'll just write a biography. Make a collage piece where you, you, uh, you know, put your thoughts and other people's thoughts interacting together, and then you analyze that in a kind of a forward or or at the end of a chapter. Break out each individual chapter as like one kind of theme that you want to do. Let's say you I do you're it. talking about like footnotes or something like that. Sure, footnotes. Um, Make the whole book footnotes. Yeah. Just mark, uh, just House of Leaves style, right? Yeah. But a biography of, of Ingmar Bergman. Was that was that House of Leaves that did all the footnotes? He, mark uh, Danielewski does like footnotes, yeah. What a weirdo. Well, that episode of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast is what kind of got me listening to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. So I suppose I owe him a high five for something. There you go. If you want to have a high five, um, you should probably wait about a year before the pandemic's over, you fucking monsters. <laughs> but if you want a virtual high five, you could do it at Film Pivotal. Yeah, we've I've I went on a Twitter spree. I retweeted like five things. It felt weird. I not don't, really a Twitter spree, but I don't like Twitter, Mario. Have you? I don't know how much time you spent on Twitter, but I spent during the protest. I spent way too much time on Twitter, going down all the rabbit holes. Um. Only to come out the other side and be like, and, and understand like the protests are a, a super necessary thing. And all the other things are just, a dis- all the other things that happen at the protest, a distraction from what like the protests are actually about. Um, See, but I had to come out the other I, side of that. I had to come out the reason, of the other side of it. The reason why I say I have to be silent during all this is I end up reading like Matt Gates's. Oh Twitter. my God. And you just want to drive to wherever Matt Gates is and punch him in the mouth. Oh yeah, sure. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. That's what I want to do. Um, or you can send us an email to if you're Matt Gates and you've got something. Also, to say. also, by the way, one one fun time, one fun little news piece from this week. Go fuck yourself, Steve King. You lost. Oh yeah, that that was a good that was a good time. I mean, but, I'm sure he's re, I'm sure he's gonna be replaced by somebody who's just one level, just like one further rung up of hell. Like he's not being chewed by Lucifer. Yeah, like well, he's frozen upside down in the ice, but you know, listen, whatever. We'll take we'll take our progressive steps as we can take them. It's called pro. One of the aspects of progressive is the word progress, and we will we will take it as a country, I suppose, to have Stephen uh, Stephen Stephen King uh, have Stephen King out. Um, let's keep Stephen King in. Um, or you can, if you are Matt Gates or Steve King or Stephen King, and you want some clarification on our feelings on any of the things we've said, you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see. Really quickly, like, really quickly, if you're Steve King or Matt Gates, you can go fuck yourselves and kill yourself. If you're Stephen King, you can email us. That's fine. They can email us too. I'd be interested to read what they have to say and then read it on the air, and we could spend a whole episode just tearing them to pieces. 
That'll be fun. If, those, if either of those men emailed us, I would not res- I would not give them a forum. That's true. That's fair. But you and me will have fun. They will have invested energy to send it to us, and we will not give them any time of day. Right. So uh, you can, I suppose, it's... If you're Stephen King, though, we'll give you, like, 15 weeks. Stephen King can have whatever he wants. Um, or you can go to PivotalFilm.com, and you can see a list of the movies on our Pivotal Film list, which we're going to get back to next week. We're going to have reviews of The Vast of Night and Shirley, which I'm really looking forward to. The reviews have been yeah, so sure. mixed on Shirley. Woo! I'm ready. I'm ready for something weird. Yeah, no. Shirley's been like really mixed, and Vast of Night has been like unanimously positive. So yeah, it'll be. I'm sure we'll love Shirley and hate Vast of Night. So that's. And the week after, we have a huge week. Like it's oh. a big week. Well, we're gonna have we to. Got... We're gonna have to chop that up. We're gonna have to do that in a couple of different weeks. So. Oh, the Five Bloods, King of Staten Island, and, uh... and Artemis Fowl. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should dedicate an entire episode to Artemis Fowl. I think so too. Judy Dench is in it, so you know it's got to be it's got to be good. Top Kenneth notch. Branagh, is that Kenneth Branagh directed film or no? Yeah, which means you oh. know it'll be a two and a half star movie. <laughs> yeah, he directed the first Thor. You guys with, remember that movie? With good, pro- I don't. With good production design. Yeah. Um, but yeah, until all of those things happen, uh, watch those movies with us. Uh, so you can know what we're talking about. Drink some beers. I don't know. Well, we're going to do, I think, another New England next week, which will be fun. Um, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>